0: If you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have a bulletin, just slip up your hands. We have plenty of both, and uh, we'll make sure that you get one, a Bible or a bulletin, and we'll get those out to you. Just hold your hand high and don't be shy. Over to your right also, Mark. Thank you. This is Psalm 32. This is a... uh, A song, a prayer song written by King David, a man who, uh, even though he was a man after God's own heart, there were many times in his life where he blew it big time and sinned big time just like you and just like me. And Psalm 32 on this occasion shows us how a man of God comes to God when he is broken and repentant of his sin. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much that you love to show mercy. You love to forgive sin. Thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus Christ putting sins on him and putting Jesus Christ righteousness on those who trust in you. Thank you so much for doing that. You would have been so just and so right to not forgive anyone and to let us all go to hell. And yet you had a different plan to rescue a people for yourself thank you so much for that. And God, I pray for anyone here this morning who has not had their sins forgiven. I pray for anyone here this morning who has not received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God, I pray this would be the day that they would receive you and that they would experience the blessing of having their sins forgiven and experience the same joy that David experienced in Psalm 32. Let today be the day where that happens. I pray for Pastor Steve as he shares the message. Guide him and lead him as he guides and leads us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, good morning. Thank you, Deamer. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. It's a privilege to be here and to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, We are in Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 begins with the word blessed. The psalm that Deemer preached on... Two weeks ago also began with the word blessed or blessed. And it means happiness. Happy. It it talks about a deep-seated, deep-rooted happiness of the soul that can't be quenched. Happy is the man who does these things. Happy is the man who's had these things happen in his life. I was reading an article this week on happiness entitled Everybody Have Fun by Elizabeth Colbert. She's a author for The New Yorker. And um This article cited several different studies on happiness. And one of the studies done in 1978 in Illinois was they studied um, a bunch of, they took a bunch of people, a sampling of people who had won the lottery. And and ranging from 5,000 to 5 million dollars. They had won the lottery and they asked them several questions about their happiness. And then they took another sampling of people who had been in serious accidents and were quadriplegics no longer had function of most of their body and they asked them the exact same questions about happiness now i'm sure you can see where this is leading The, the researchers were shocked in 1978 that the the results of the people over here that had the money and all this stuff even though they said that the greatest thing that ever happened in their life was that they had won the lottery they were no more happy than the people over here who were quadriplegic, And these people identified the worst thing that ever happened in their life was to their accident that they were in. Yet, these people are a lot more happy, especially in the mundane things of life, like going to the store. Okay, so here's someone over here with money to buy anything he wants at the store, is unhappy going shopping, and this person over here who has to have a special lift to get in the car to get to the store has happiness when they go out and buy things. And so it was a multiple, I can't go through all the questions that were asked, but overall the bottom line was, these people were lot happier over here than the people who'd won the lottery. So they went back, they, the researchers thought, surely there must be something wrong here. Maybe people that play the lottery have a disposition towards sadness. So they took another sampling of people, um, they also had a control sample of people that were just random people picked out of a phone book. Then they went and took another sample of people um, that were half of them were lottery players and half of them were not lottery players, and they discovered that all of them had the same bent towards happiness or unhappiness. There was no difference there whatsoever. So the pilot had to come to the conclusion that money actually not only didn't make them happy, it actually had the adverse effect on these people. Actually, made them less happy in life than. The other people now she cites a bunch of other research as well but the bent of her article it's interesting it was written back in march of this year the bent of her article is a political bent because she's talking in here about redistribution of wealth in, in, in society and she says maybe we should rethink this she, she's very liberal in her thoughts she says maybe we should rethink this redistribution of wealth because this doesn't seem to make people happy and so she's rethinking her political stance on taxes and on, on the way money is distributed in, in our nation because of its happiness factor. And so anyway, I just found it very interesting that um, we need these researchers out there to, to tell us that money doesn't make you happy. I think we all know that. I think we all know there's lots of things we may pin our hopes to that will make us happy. Maybe um, getting married. Surely there's joy in getting married, but maybe there's things we didn't expect with getting married as well, or having kids, or that new that, that job that we want to get. And Demon talked a little bit about this last week, or a couple of weeks ago, how we are on this pursuit in America, this American dream, that we need to wake up from. We really need to wake up from because, in the end, it doesn't make us happy. And the deepest, deepest, most, um, uh, most foundational, the root of happiness is found in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And we talked about this last week. Blessed, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So we only got two verses through the psalm last week. So I intended I on preaching the whole psalm last week. We only got through verses 1 and 2. So this is the second half. of of Psalm 32, the second half of of the sermon, if you will. So we're going to continue with this, but I need to do a little bit of recap here. Now let me just, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are in a series called Summer Psalms, where we're just preaching through different psalms during the summer. We'll get back in the fall, when we start back our Bible studies and everything, we'll get back to preaching verse by verse through the book of Acts. I'm looking forward to that. I'm excited about getting back into the book of Acts. But for right now, we're in... The Psalms, and this is one of the Psalms we chose, and I chose it particularly because I was really wanting a Psalm that focused us, focused our minds on confession. I wanted a a, a, a Psalm that really got us thinking about confession and worship, and and worshiping through confession. Because my whole intent on doing the summer Psalms was for us to focus on worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth during the summer, and and the Psalms are are essentially worship songs they're, they're there to help us lo- learn how to worship it's raw worship and so i wrote a psalm on on um on confession and repentance and this was the one i chose i talked with dean about it and he he pointed me to this one i thought you know that'd be a great one to follow but especially psalm one that he did and um and so we did this psalm but before i could get to the confession part i couldn't get past verses one and two and one and two isn't about confession One and two is about justification. It's about being right before God. Now, certainly, in order to be right before God, we have to confess our sins to Him. But the confession that I want us to deal with with the rest of this psalm is a lifestyle of confession. But what David deals with first is his standing before God. Before he gets into talking about confessing his sins or his lack of confession and what that did to his life... He has to deal with the fact that he knows he's locked, solid, secure in the fact that his sins have been forgiven. They've been rolled away. They've been covered up. Not that they're hidden, but they've been blotted out by something. And therefore, his sin is no longer counted to him. It's actually been taken off of his account. And so he has something else that's been placed in his account so that he can be right with God. And that's where we were last week. So just for the sake of recap, I want to remind us that Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 were quoted by the Apostle Paul in his uh, discussion or his theological treatise on justification by faith alone that we find in Romans chapter 4. So I'm going to read some verses for you out of Romans chapter 4 starting in verse 1. Paul says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, that means made right before God, if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that's the word Paul's focusing on, this word counted. He quotes Genesis 15, 6, and he says, Abraham believed God, had faith in God, trusted in God, put all of his hope in God, and that was counted to him. Something was put on his account, which was righteousness. So, Paul here, he's talking about justification by faith alone. And now he goes on to say, Now the one who works, verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Verse 6, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and now he goes on to quote, this passage of scripture he says blessed are the ones whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man against whom the lord will not count his sin and what paul's drawing our attention to is this word count he says david speaks of of righteousness being gained by faith alone david speaks about justification and where does he go to he goes to psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 and what he's showing us by the example of Abraham and David is the twofold transaction that happens on the cross. When we trust in Jesus Christ by faith, put all of our hope in him, two things happen at the cross. Number one, our sins are not counted against us anymore. They are rolled away, they are placed upon Christ. And then secondly, we are given something, something is counted to us, it's Christ's. Righteousness. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches in all kinds of places, and I'll just give you one. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the transaction that occurs on the cross. So this is the root, the core, the foundation of true happiness. And our bottom line last week was this. Oop. Go back for me. There you go. The truly happy person is the fully forgiven person the truly happy person is the fully forgiven person and i had two points last week we only got to two points the first one was this in order to experience true happiness we must understand our condition and if you'll remember uh, D- David here gives us three words to describe our condition. He talks about our transgression, being forgiven. And transgression is an intentional stepping across God's line. It's trespassing where God, where God has said not to go. Don't do that. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They walked across the boundary. They trespassed, transgressed, and broke God's law. But he also says, who's, blessed is a man whose sin is, is covered. So he talks about sin. And what is sin? Sin in the Hebrew literally means falling short of the mark. It would be the image of shooting an arrow towards, a, uh, towards a, a mark at the back there, a bullseye. And it just lands about two feet in front of me. It falls way short of the mark. It's what exactly Paul talks about when he says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So David talks about Intentional Stepping over of God's boundary and falling short of God's expectation. And then he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And if you remember, iniquity means a corruption. An internal corruption. And so really, our internal corruption involves both of those things. Transgressing and falling short. That we are corrupt in our very nature. This is the doctrine of total depravity. And my second point was that not only that do we need to experience true happiness by understanding our condition, we also, in order to experience true happiness, must understand God's solution. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven. The word here means it's 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 taken away. Literally, it means rolled away. It's the image we have of uh, in Pilgrim's Progress of, of Christian coming to the to the Calvary there and his, his burden that's on his back. His the big uh, burden which represents his sin is loosed and it falls off his back and it rolls away, rolls down the hill and rolls into the sepulcher. That's the image here that our forget, our sins have been rolled away. But it also said whose sin is covered, not covering as in you've got a stain on your clothing and you take a patch of new clothing and cover it up and hide it. More like you've got a stain on your clothing and you take something and you blot it out. You cover it up with something and it goes away and it disappears. And then the third word he uses here is the word count, which is what Paul hones in on in, in Romans. He said, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So God takes away our sin, rolls it away, Covers it was something and David knew that the only way that the, the way God had prescribed for for sin to be covered was that innocent blood had to be shed there had to be the shedding of blood to cover sin so there's a covering of the sin There's the rolling of it away. This is the image seen in in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement when the priest would put his hands in the wilderness. He put his hands on the goat, the scapegoat, and they send it out into the wilderness. That represented the sins being taken away. And then they would sacrifice the other goat and they would sprinkle his blood on the altar and and the the blood would be the covering of sins. So there's this twofold transaction that happens so that our sin will not be counted against us. So, I wanted to recap that could have done that last week and gotten done with the sermon on time. But I had to spend longer on those first two verses last week. But I want to recap that because that sets us up for the rest of the psalm. Because David is a believer here. David is a believer in the Lord. He believes he's trusting in God for his sin to be forgiven. And so what he says here in the rest of this psalm is in light of a man who stands confident that his sin has been whirled away. Stands confident that his, his sin has been covered. That's what David is. And so now we're going to look at David and how he sees the need and understands the need to continually confess his sins. And so what I want us to, to kind of set us up today, I want to say this, that those who have experienced true happiness through total forgiveness are people who regularly confess their sin. In other words, people who have been justified People who've been right with God are people who are confessional people. We should always be confessing our sins. We should want to confess our sins regularly. I like what what um, Mark said a minute ago up here. He talked about looking at God, and we see God as in Isaiah chapter six. We see God. We can't help but realize we're men of unclean lips. We can't help but confess. And so when we look at verses 1 and 2, and we look at this awesome God who has this amazing plan that began from Genesis chapter 1, okay, and it's executed at the cross, and it's still being carried out today to, to bring a people to himself, this beautiful plan that God covers our sin, he takes it away, and then he covers it with the blood of his own son, Jesus. We see this. We can't help but be confessing people. Because if you really have embraced that, then the rest of your life is going to be a process of wanting to please that God, wanting to be more like Jesus, wanting to continue in a process of what we call sanctification, being made into the likeness of Christ as God's Holy Spirit works within us. So justified people are people who confess their sins on a regular basis. Martin Luther, of course, famous for... Uh, nailing his 95 theses uh, at the door of the Wittenberg Church, he, in the very first of his theses, he says this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He, the whole life of a believer is to be one of repentance. Recognizing our sin that continues to be present in our bodies even after our salvation means that we'll be people without deceit. The last part of verse 2 here talks about being uh, people in whose spirit there is no deceit. Happy is the man who's not living in self-deception. One of the greatest deceptions that the enemy draws on to confuse Christians, to confuse justified people, is the deception that we do not need to be constantly establishing a discipline of confessing our sins to God. We need to be recognizing our sin. We need to be fighting our sin. As John Owen said, we need to be mortifying our sin. We need to be killing it. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us to do. Put to death the sins in our body. Put them to death. There's a process of sanctification that we're going through that we can't do without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And, and, And so we need to be continually working on dealing with the sin that remains in these corrupt bodies. Anything less than that is living in deception. Deceived to think that we're saved by grace through faith, but we're sustained by our own works. It's one of the greatest deceptions out there. Yeah, I'm, I'm saved by trusting Jesus Christ, but I, I'm sustained in life by just working and doing good things for Jesus. No, we're, we're sustained by His grace as well. So we need His grace to enable us, to help us to be people who confess. We're deceived into thinking we no longer need confession. There are a strain of Christians who believe that um, you don't need to confess your sins because you know you confessed your sins and accepted Jesus Christ and he died for your sins on the cross therefore you don't need to be living a lifestyle of confession you're just repeating it's already been taken care of and and what those people failed to see that yes on the cross our sin was dealt with in a judicial way once for all Jesus said it is finished and therefore our sins past present and future are dealt with at the cross and so we are positionally right before God and justified But what they fail to see is the Scripture also talks about us becoming more like Christ. And that salvation isn't just a one-time thing. It's also a process of what we call sanctification. So practically, in our life, we are growing and we are learning and we are being sanctified and becoming more like Christ. So we don't need to deceive ourselves into thinking that we don't need to be regularly confessing our sins. Or deceived into self-righteousness. I don't have any sins to confess. Hey, I don't have anything to, to deal with God with. That's a deception. We're deceived into hiding our sin instead of dealing with it. Or trying to deal with it in our strength. Or deceived into the hypocrisy of confessionless Christianity. Calvin said, he who, does not, he who feels not his disease refuses his remedy and he is deceived. He who feels not his disease. Do you not feel the disease of sin that still remains in our body even though it's been put to death? It can no longer separate us from God ever. We're no longer going to be separated from Christ if we've placed our faith in Him. Yet, we have this body of death that continues to be having these issues with sin all of our life. If you don't feel that, then you're deceived. You're deceived. So let's go on with the psalm now and look at what David has to say about Confession. Psalm 32, the start in verse 3 now. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. A believer in Christ, one who has indeed been justified by faith alone, by God's grace alone, cannot help but be a confessing person. To live without confessing our sins robs us of the blessing, of the happiness that David speaks of in this psalm and causes us to live in misery. Confession is a lifestyle of the regenerate person. It's part of the fruit of God's Spirit working in us. So the first point I want us to see today is that confession provides evidence that a person is justified. Confession is evidence that a person is indeed in Christ and therefore is justified and is saved. For the unjustified man may feel guilt over his sin and it may even cause him discomfort, but his guilt will be man-centered. It will be more guilty over the circumstances, guilty that he got caught, guilty that he just feels bad about himself, but it won't be guilt that he's offended a righteous and holy God. And so it won't lead to the type of confession that David is speaking of here. And Paul speaks of these two different types of guilt or two different types of grief when he says in 2 Corinthians 17, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If a person says that he's a believer in Jesus Christ, yet never feels the need to confess his sins consistently or regularly, or maybe feels that he just doesn't have any sins to confess, I have a hard time believing that that person is indeed in Christ and that the Spirit of the living God has taken up residence in his soul. Matthew Henry wrote, The Christian religion is a religion of sinners, of such as have sinned in whom sin in some measure still dwells. The Christian life is a life of continued repentance, humiliation for, and mortification of sin, of continual faith and thankfulness for and love to the Redeemer and hopeful, joyful expectation of a day of glorious redemption in which the believer shall be fully and finally acquitted and sin abolished forever. So there's a need to continue to confess. Matter of fact, I see two types of evidences here in this passage. First, there's the evidence of internal discomfort. David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. The bones, you'll think about your bones, are the hardest, the most sturdy part of your being. So they represent your strength. David says, when I was living with unconfessed sin in my life, my strength was sapped. Have you ever felt like that? I can honestly say that I have. If there's times when I just know I need to confess something, I need to deal with something in my life, or maybe I'm not aware of it, but I need to be praying that God's Spirit will show me where I'm falling short right now. And, and, and you just feel sapped. You don't quite know what's going on. And that's how David feels. He's wasting away. He's groaning all day long. The bones also represent the core of our being, the deepest part of who we are. We say it all the time. Okay, when, some, when someone insults us, we say, that cut to the bone. Okay, that hurt all the way here. Or you say, I'm, I'm chilled to the bone. Well, we, we say it's all the way to the core, the inner part of who we are. And so David says that he, is, he was uncomfortable. He felt discomfort all the way down to the very deepest parts of his being. The aching of the bones is a result of our heart being grieved. And for the New Testament believer, it's the Holy Spirit being grieved. Ephesians 4.30 teaches us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And this is a great work of grace, for a loving father doesn't leave his child in sin. God wants us to be uncomfortable when we're living in sin. So it's an act of grace when we begin to feel this aching of the bones with unconfessed sin. Second evidence I see here is an external evidence, or the evidence of external discomfort. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. God is doing this. not only does he feel grieved inside because he knows, a heart that belongs to God knows when it's not operating the way it should to bring glory to God. But also God from the external side is bringing discipline down on his child. His hand is heavy upon David. What grace this discomfort is. Only the justified can call discomfort grace. Only the justified can call the heavy hand of God grace because only the justified see it as what it is, the loving discipline of a father with his child. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5, says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, listen to this, verse 8 of Hebrews 12. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, in words, all believers experience the discipline of God. If you're out there saying, I've never been disciplined, I must be living right because I've never been disciplined by God. Let me tell you what, you're not on the road to sanctification because all of us have sin in our life that needs to be disciplined, and I'm not saying that on my authority, I'm saying that on the authority of the author of Hebrews who wrote on the inspiration of God. It says here, if you're left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You're not a child of God if you don't experience discipline, because we all have things we need to confess. I think usually it's the big things we think of, right? Right? Maybe you watched something on TV you shouldn't have watched, and so we feel the need to confess that. But before a holy and righteous God who is sanctifying us, who wants us to be right, who wants us to be holy, who wants us to be set apart, every little thing, the little white lie you told to someone at the workplace that you just didn't have to go into a conversation you didn't want to go into is just as bad before a holy God. It needs to be dealt with. And if we're growing in our faith and growing in the light of who Christ is, we'll see those sins and we'll confess those sins and we'll deal with those sins. And God will bring us under discipline so that we will deal with those sins because He loves us. This is a great work of grace. He says later, the author of Hebrews says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful full righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceful righteousness Fruit of righteousness. Now, this brings us to a question that I've already partially answered earlier, but I want to hit it again here. Okay, if we've already been forgiven of our sins, justified, as Psalm 32, 1 through 2 speaks of, we've already been forgiven of our sins, why do we need to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness of sins on a regular basis? As I mentioned earlier, there's some who say you don't need to do that. Well, I think if you say that, then you've got to disagree with the Lord Jesus himself. Because when the disciples came to, to the Lord Jesus and asked them, how do we pray? He says, this is how you pray. And he gives them a model prayer. Not that they repeat these exact words, but this is, these are the elements that should be in your prayer life. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into Temptation. Jesus taught a lifestyle of asking for forgiveness of sins. He didn't say, pray this prayer, wait until I die on the cross. Until the Son of Man is raised up and is lifted up again, pray this prayer. He's giving them a lifestyle of prayer and teaching them how to be close to their Father. And one of the ways is for them to ask for daily forgiveness of sins. For them to be confessing their sin. Matter of fact, the Bible goes on to say in Hebrews 725 that Jesus is always living to make intercession for his saints, for his children, for us, for his brothers and sisters. He's always living to make intercession for us. Therefore, the image there is that we're always coming to the Father. Okay, it's not that he did it at the cross and he sat up there waiting, oh, boy. When is this going to be over? Okay, he's there, he's interceding on behalf of us every minute as we're right here right now. He's interceding on our behalf and we're to be confessing continually and say, Jesus, I've fallen short yet again. And so we should be living a lifestyle of confessing our sins to our great high priest. But didn't Jesus say it was finished? He did say it was finished. So I think it's necessary for us to see the difference between the forgiveness of sins that was necessary for right standing before God. I talked about that two-fold transaction. There is a judicial, forensic forgiveness of sin where our sin, past, present, future, has all been paid for by Christ on the cross so we are positionally declared righteous before God. Yet at the same time, there is a process that all believers are going through where we have fellowship with God and we grow in our understanding of God and grow into the Christ-likeness that He wants us to be. And so that forgiveness that we pray for in that sense is praying to God for fatherly forgiveness so that we can have right fellowship with Him. Parental discipline of sin is necessary for healthy relationship with God. So Deemer just went to Africa, as I heard him mention earlier. And they go to Africa, and they adopt Elijah. And um, if you haven't seen Elijah, I'm sure there's Facebook pictures already up of Elijah. He's a beautiful, beautiful child. But um, it didn't matter what he looked like. He's their child. He's beautiful anyway. And so they went and they picked him up and he's in their family. He's been adopted into the web household. And so when we accept Jesus Christ according to first, I mean John 1:12, that we are declared children of God. For all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We've been adopted. The scripture uses that exact language and adopted into God's family. So here's the thing. Once that's happened, the only way that can happen is if we're justified, if we've been made right, if the blood of Christ has covered us, we've received His righteousness, and our sins have been rolled away. It's the only way that can happen. And that's what happens at the cross. And so we're part of the family. But then we have this process called sanctification. Justification happens at the cross. Then there's sanctification as we're being made into the likeness of Christ. And we're still part of His family and so the way I compare it is, Elijah's going to grow up here, and then one day, I'm certain it's going to happen, he's going to do something to disappoint you. Maybe one day he's playing in the house with his soccer ball, because I'm going to start teaching him soccer as soon as he can stand. All right? But one day he's going to be playing with his soccer ball in the house, and he's going to kick that ball, and it's going to hit a lamp, and it's going to fall or something, and it's going to shatter. And maybe he'll lie about it and say, the wind did it. The curtains caught the, in the wind and just knocked it over. Who knows? But he'll be caught in his sin. And what Demer will do is forgive him. But he wants that Elijah to come and confess that sin and to say, yes, I did it, Dad. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? So that he can have that communion with Elijah again. He's not going to kick him out of the house. You're no longer a web. Get out of here. Okay? None of y'all would do that to your children, I don't think. <laughs> you don't just kick him out of the house and say, you're no longer a part of this family. But you know what? The relationship is strained and it's stressed when that child has disappointed the parent and when that child harbors that unconfessed sin. That disappointment is there. And that strained relationship is there. And so that's the difference here. We've been brought into God's family, but like children who do things as silly as kicking a soccer ball and breaking a lamp, we transgress, we fall short, We continue, because of this iniquity, this corruption that's in our heart, to not do the things God wants us to do. Hopefully we're growing in righteousness and holiness, but we fail. And so as children, we need to be coming to God, asking forgiveness, so that that relationship can be repaired and we can have better communion with God. So just to clarify again, justification is the judicial forgiveness of sin. It overcomes our eternal separation from God. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And sanctification involves a fatherly, parental forgiveness of sin that overcomes our breach in fellowship with God. 1 John 1, 5-10 speaks of this. Let me read this real quickly here and give a little illustration that hopefully maybe the kids can connect with this morning. Verse 9, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So I've got a a flashlight here, and I'm going to have one of our kids come up and try to turn this thing on for me. Let's see here. Well, Noah, you're the only one raising your hand, so come on up here. I want you to turn on this flashlight for me, and tell me how it's working. It's not working. Okay, obviously. Now, it's not working. Now, a flashlight has a purpose. A flashlight is intended to help you walk in a dark room. That's the purpose of it. It is not a paperweight. It is not a pretend lightsaber. It is a flashlight. It is to help you walk through the darkness. That's the purpose of this. But without the batteries, it can't do it. Okay, so that's, that's the problem here. There's no batteries. Okay, so uh, I'm going to go put some batteries in it. Hang on to this part right here. I'm going to put batteries in it. Hopefully I put it in the right direction. All right, now. Now, let's see, see if it works there. Okay, it does now. And I want us to see, this is what happens. We, we, we are created to shine the light of Christ. We're created to walk in fellowship, walk in the light. That's what we're created to do. We're not created to be paperweights or anything. We're created to glorify God. And so what happens at justification is that we receive the power to do that when God's Spirit comes to live within us. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are forgiven, we're made right with God, and He gives us a deposit, the Bible says, His Holy Spirit. Now hang on to that, and we're going to see how good you are at solving problems here. Alright, I'm going to take this. I'm going to stick this in here. I'm sticking a little brown... um, Napkin in there. Now, see, do you think it's going to work? No. All right. Okay. Let's see. Apps, is it working? It won't even turn on. Okay. It's not working at all. Obviously, because of why? The there. There's something blocking it. There's something blocking the, the spirit, the batteries here, from from shining out through this flashlight. And it is what? Not working. And yeah, no. But what's blocking it? The, the, the napkin here, okay? So this napkin is blocking it. And so what I want us to see is this napkin is like unconfessed sin. And so just as an object lesson to help you kids understand what I'm talking about here, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that's done. That's there. The Spirit is in us. It's a guarantee. It's a deposit. And so we are to walk in the light according to John. Walk in the light. But oftentimes we walk in darkness because we have unconfessed sin. And it's like this napkin here. It's keeping us from being who God's created us to be. Keeping us from operating in the way that God wants us to operate for His glory. Go ahead and have a seat. So that's exactly what's happening in John chapter 1 in these verses here. John talks about how we're out of fellowship. There's fellowship with Christ. He wants us to have. That's walking in the light. But we often walk in darkness and deceive ourselves. So we need to constantly be seeking a restored fellowship. And how do we do that? We do that in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Now those who say that you don't need to confess your sins as a Christian would argue that, well, no, this isn't talking about um, sanctification. This is talking about salvation here, this verse. But it's not talking about salvation because if you look at the verse, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. The Bible says that God is just and the justifier. There's no way that God can be just in forgiving our sins unless they've been dealt with. There's no way that God can be just in this verse unless redemption has already happened. The only way this is just is if the sin has actually been dealt with in a punitive way. If it's been punished. That's the only way that God is just in chapter 1 of 1 John in verse 9. That's the only way He's just there. Otherwise, he's unjust by just forgiving our sins because we say we're sorry, because we admit that we've done them. He'd be an unjust God. He'd be the unjust judge we talked about last week when the person comes in and says, I admit I committed murder and I feel bad about it. And the judge says, you know what? I'm, I, I'm glad you feel bad about that. I'm glad you admitted that. Why don't you just go free? Un, Uncut from God and let him go. There still has to be punishment for the sin. And so it to be unjust for God to just forgive our sins and so there is a punitive, there is a punishment that needs to happen, and we see that in the cross. And so this verse here is talking about Christians. It's talking about our fellowship with God, our walking in the light. So back to Psalm 32 real quick here. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. We need to recognize our sin. Stop denying our sin. I did not cover my iniquity. Notice the parallel here. It's the same word for cover. In verse 2, God covers it. In verse 5, David tried to cover it. Only God's covering of sin actually deals with the sin. Our covering of sin simply hides it. He said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. All confession needs to be to God. Will you not confess to people? It's okay to confess if you've harmed someone else in your sin. Go and tell them and confess that sin to them. But ultimately, the guilt of your sin is a sin against God, and you need to confess it to Him. We don't go through a priest. You don't go through a preacher. You confess your sin directly to the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned, and then what is evil in your sight is what David said in Psalm 51. And he goes on to say in, here, in this psalm, And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Let me tell you what, sin creates a distance between us, between us and God. And even the believer can get to points in his life when you've, you've become so calloused to God's discipline in your life, you've become so calloused to Him that it's it, it, it become a chasm between you and God. And it's hard to find God. Not that he can't be found. He will be found. But the scripture speaks of sin unto death. That believers can commit sin in such a way, in such a capacity, and in such a consistent manner that God will take them out in order to preserve the glory of his name. There's nothing worse than being out of fellowship with someone you love. I have never met a man who likes the silent treatment. Maybe there's one of you guys out there. Don't tell your wife you like the silent treatment. Well, unless you... Actually, that may work. You'll get the silent treatment if you tell her that. I, don't know, I hate it. I hate it when, when Heather doesn't want to talk to me. It drives me nuts. Okay? and it, it really just... Oh, it kills me. I can't stand it. And, and, and that's the way it is with God. We hate to be separated from Him if we are truly justified people. So I want to move quickly. Wow, it's like I want to quickly through the last three points. Confession brings peace to the one who is justified. David says, Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me, and you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. There's only one way to deal with the troubles of this sinful life. It's to trust in God's deliverance. And those who've been justified, when we come to God and we bring confession to him, we can live in peace and know that he is with us to bring us through all the troubles we have. Now this does not mean that we don't have to deal with the consequences. The consequences of our sin may still endure. There may still be trouble that's been created because of the problems that we created with our sin. But happy is the man who's forgiven. And happy is the man whose troubles in this world, even if they'd never vanish, happy is the man who finds confidence in his God that God will be with him and help him through those troubles. So yet, even in the midst of our trouble, we are confident that he is ours and we are his. We are justified. So confession is a way of bringing peace to the one who's justified. Confession also, let's go back one. Confession, go back one for me, guys. All right. Confession enables teaching from the one who is justified. Look at David. He stops here now, and he begins to talk to the congregation, to the people that he's writing this psalm for. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David did something similar in Psalm 51. After he had confessed his sin, he said, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Let me tell you, you want someone teaching you the Scriptures. You want someone teaching you who actually is a person who confesses their sin. Because when you've experienced it, when you know, when you know that you've fallen short of what God wants, and you go to Him and you confess to Him, that gives you the authenticity to speak into someone else's life. But if you live in a self-righteous way... In a, in a way that you're not show any sort of vulnerability in that hey, I want anyone in this world to know I got it together, I never make any mistakes I'm perfect, you don't have any authority to speak into anybody's life because none of us are like that all of us have fallen short all of us have lots of failures in our life I don't care what pastor you like listening to on the internet name your favorite one Piper, Spool I don't care who it is, name him he's got problems He's got problems in his marriage. He's got problems with his kids. He's got problems with his finances. He's got problems in lots of areas of his life. And that's okay. It actually gives him the authority and the authenticity to be able to speak into other people's lives because he's gone through the issues and he's dealt with them. And that's what David is speaking of here. And he encourages us not to be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle and will not stay near you. God wants us to be near to him. He says, so don't be like a stupid beast. You know, Francis trains horses. He's over there smiling right now. Hey, have your horses ever confessed their sin to you, Francis? I, have you heard, I don't think your horses ever stop and say, Sorry, Mr. Francis. I should have done that better. No. They're stupid animals. All right? So you've got to yank them and pull that bit and get them to do what you want them to do. And God doesn't want to treat his children that way. Don't be like a stupid horse that has to be yanked around. God wants you to be near Him. He wants to be able to gently guide you. Now Francis has some horses that he's well trained and they respond to your words, right? You say, do this and they do it. It's because they're scared you're going to whoop them, all right? But God wants us to be near Him so that we hear His word and we just respond. And so when that sin pops up in our life, and we just deal with it. We deal with it. Don't be like a mule or a horse that has to be dragged around Animals act out of self-preservation, not out of a self-awareness of guilt. But man is creating God's image and thus is a spiritual being and has a conscience that bears witness to the truth. So this is really about lordship. Confession is really about lordship. We want Christ to rule in all areas of our life. Finally, confession restores joy to the one who is justified. So this just brings us full circle. We start off with happiness and joy. And this brings us full circle. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, are you upright in heart. So one of the things that happens when we are willing to confess our sins to God is our joy is restored. So what are we to do with this this morning? Confession is one of the evidences of your salvation. Confession is the fruit of the Spirit's work in you. Although it may feel like pain, confession deals with our pride. It kills our sin. It keeps us from becoming pharisaical Christians who judge the specks in the eyes of everyone we encounter while we fail to see the logs in our own eyes. So in our time of response this morning, I want us all to respond and ask God to shine His light in our hearts and show us where we need to confess. I want us to come to this God, this holy God before whom we've been justified by the, by the blood of Christ who gave us His righteousness and absorbed God's wrath on our behalf on the cross, rolling away our sins, giving us His righteousness instead. I want us to think about that and this morning come to Him and talk to Him. And if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced verses 1 and 2, then I want you to respond by dealing with that first. So right now, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask our praise band to come and lead us in one song as we close. Let's just bow our heads and pray and respond to God this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would just do a work in our heart. Lord, I thank you that when I was nine years old, I professed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and shortly afterward, I was baptized just like Garrett was here this morning. And ever since then, I've been on a roller coaster ride. There have been good years, good days, good months. There's been bad months, days, years. Days when I've lived the way you've wanted me to live and days when I've just totally fallen short. And God, there's so many times when I haven't confessed my sin to you. And Lord, there's so many sins right now that I know I have in my own body, in my own person that I need to confess to you. Things I need to deal with in my life. So God, I pray this morning that we would be confessional people. If we've truly been saved, we can't help but be confessing people because we want that relationship. We want to continue to walk with You. So God, this morning as we come to You, we pray that You do a work in our heart. If there's anyone here this morning that's just been practicing religion, just been going through the motions, but they're not in a relationship with You, they haven't come into that fellowship with You that is severed by sin. Lord, I pray, Father, this morning that they would just come this morning. And that they would do what, they would receive what you've done in Psalm thirty-two verses one and two. That rolling away of sin, that covering of sin with the blood of Christ, that counting His righteousness towards us and not counting our sin against us. Lord, they would come and speak to me or deemer about that this morning. So, Lord, during this time right now, we want you to be magnified and glorified as we bring our offerings, as we bring our prayers, and as we respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Please stand if you would, as Mark leads us in one song.
2: We're gonna sing a, a, song that comes from Isaiah thirty. Um, part of the song says, "We confess that we've been stubborn and proud. We confess that we've been busy and loud. And um, and maybe you have been stubborn and proud and busy and loud. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've been at least three of those things just this morning, um, honestly. And um, but fill in the blank." Um, If you have something to confess while you're singing that and just sing it, um, you know, so let's just, uh, let's sing this and confess and respond.
3: We have gotten our way. We long. And we roll and we cry. For your grace and compassion. Grace and compassion. Show grace and compassion, grace and compassion to us. Confess that we have been stubborn and proud. We have wanted our way. We confess that we have been busy and.
2: a sinner before you, God, and I'm unworthy of your grace. I recognize that you've given me your grace. I recognize that you've given forgiveness to all those who will receive it. And I am so unworthy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.